Well, friends, it is great to be back in the pulpit. I am extremely thankful for the ministry of the Word from Jim Wetterland a couple weeks ago and Greg Gilbert last week and for what the Lord taught us and did in our midst through them. But I am glad to bring you God's Word again this morning and finish up our series in, in 1 Timothy. Uh, I typically do not preach specific sermons about mothers or fathers on Mother's Day or Father's Day. So if that's an expectation that you have, I'm sorry to disappoint you. Um, our typical practice here at Redeeming Grace is to just keep trucking through the Word wherever we are, whatever series we're in, whatever book of the Bible we're preaching through. That's what we keep doing on these days. But um, you know what? Today's sermon is really, I think, especially appropriate and applicable for dads. Uh, brothers, we as men... Uh, we often find our worth and our value in our work, don't we? And if we're not careful, we even have a definition of our worth and our value in our work that's greater than even our central identity in the Lord Jesus. And if quit so quickly, it's easy to migrate, isn't it, from the responsibility to provide for our families toward having actually a craving for wealth and money. And so today, this, this morning, in our text, the Apostle Paul is going to take, take dead aim at the love of money. Let me ask you this morning, as we begin, is your life marked by contentment in Christ? When it comes to your finances and your possessions, is your soul, the innermost part of who you are, is it satisfied? Is it joyful? Is it at rest in the Lord in relation to money. Let me ask it another way. When it comes to your finances and possessions, is your soul perpetually dissatisfied, anxious, restless because of what you don't have? You say, well, John, but inflation. John, but my salary. You don't understand. But the size of my house. Well, friends, I would encourage you even at the outset this morning to be honest with yourself when you answer these questions as we look at the text this morning. As I mentioned just a second ago in, the, in our passage today, the Apostle Paul takes dead aim at this idolatry of craving money, of loving stuff more than God, of conceiving of godliness and Christianity as a means of personal profit. Now, notice I didn't say that, that Paul takes dead aim at money or even at the rich themselves. That's not what he does at all. Nowhere in our passage will we find Paul condemning wealth or condemning the rich. Instead, he exposes how destructive it is to desire riches, how toxic it is for our souls to set our hearts on money and the things that can buy. Instead, God's word is going to exhort us toward contentment, toward gratitude, and toward generosity. So turn your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6 is on page 993 of the Bible underneath your seat if you need that Bible. Uh, today, friends, we wrap up what has turned out to be a 12-part series in the, in the book of 1 Timothy. In Paul's first letter to Timothy, his young protege in ministry, whom he had left in, in Ephesus, an ancient city in, in Asia Minor, to restore a struggling church back to spiritual health. Friends, I hope as we have gone through this letter that you have sensed the awesome privilege that we have and the awesome responsibility that God has given us to each local church, to us as Redeeming Grace Church, to protect and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The truths that we confess and the doctrine that we hold dear are massively important to representing Christ in this world. But so is the way that we live together as a church. What we've seen in 1 Timothy is that the degree to which we live together in a God-honoring way is the degree to which we bear effective witness to Christ in the world. Even as Paul has closed this letter, he's turned his attention to very practical things in the life of the church, like caring for widows and caring for elders and responding to, to authority in our lives. And now as he comes and he closes this letter, he turns his attention toward the Christian's posture toward money. Let's read together. Chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 3. We're going to read toward the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy 6, 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content." But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of, of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, here's what I think the main idea of these last few verses of 1 Timothy 6 is. The main idea of the text, I hope it'll be the main idea of the sermon this morning. Craving money corrodes and jeopardizes your soul. So pursue godliness and invest for eternity. Craving money, craving wealth, loving money, setting your heart on it, it, it corrodes your soul with all types of other evils, as the scripture says. It puts it in jeopardy. It's a one-way path to ruin and destruction. 
Also, friends, please don't go down that road. On the other hand, pursue godliness and invest for eternity. Three points this morning in verses 3 to 10. Beware the danger of craving money. Beware the danger of craving money. Number two, pursue the things that lead to life. It's in verses 11 to 16. And lastly, number three, a word to the wealthy. Invest your wealth for an eternal dividend. Invest your wealth for an eternal dividend. Beware the danger of craving money. Pursue the things that lead to life. Invest your wealth for an eternal dividend. Friends, Paul closes this letter in much the same way as he began it, with a charge to Timothy to combat false teachers whose doctrine was killing the church and destroying its witness. In chapter 6, what Paul does is he kind of reprises many of the same themes of of chapter 1. It seems like Paul is kind of intentionally bookending the letter in a similar way as he began it. So hold your finger in chapter 6 and flip back to chapter 1 for just a moment. I want you to see this. Notice in chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says that he left Timothy in Ephesus so that he might charge persons not to teach any, quote, different doctrine. Now in 6.3, Paul, once again, he stresses the evil of teaching a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, throughout chapter 1, we see this, this tight relationship between the gospel and godliness. In in chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writes that the the ungodliness that's rampant in this world as part of the human condition is what? It's contrary to sound doctrine, which accords with the true gospel. Well, now in chapter 6, verse 3, Paul again stresses this, this tight connection between the true gospel and true godliness. You really cannot have one without the other. It's like peanut butter and jelly. True gospel, true godliness. Where the, where the biblical gospel of the crucified and risen Christ for sinners is, is embraced and it's taught, godliness will follow. A necessary byproduct of applying biblically healthy doctrine is a biblically healthy life. That's what Paul wants us to see. In chapter 1, Paul breaks out into a doxology of praise in verse 17. He does the same thing in, chapter 50, or in verse 15 of chapter 6. In chapter 1, verse 18, he, he urges Timothy to wage the good warfare. And in 6.12, he commands Timothy as God's man to fight the good fight of faith. Okay, are you seeing the parallels? Paul bookends the, the, this letter with the same themes. This issue of upholding sound doctrine in the life of the church, friends, is so important that Paul comes back to it again and again and again. In these last verses of chapter 6, Paul is most concerned with with showing that that what accompanies false teaching, what accompanies corrupt doctrine, is a corrupt life of the false teachers, okay? The wolf may masquerade as a sheep, but when you pull back the costume, what are you going to find? You're going to find the character of a wolf. A bad tree can fake good fruit for a time, but eventually the bad fruit is going to show up. Notice the specific sins that Paul highlights. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it's pride-filled ignorance. Okay, he writes starting in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Friends, those who intentionally teach false doctrine, okay, Not on accident. (laughs) This is an intentional thing. They've swerved from the truth. Friends, they are filled with arrogance. 
They exalt their opinions and thoughts and speculations rather than the Scriptures. They stand over the Word in pride rather than under the Scripture in humble submission. Friends, and even though they may look really smart, the, the, the interpretations they give may look smart and novel and wise, Paul says they understand nothing. Proclaiming to be wise, they become fools. But notice in verse 4, it's not just that the false teachers are heretical and arrogant. Their prideful lives and teaching divide the church. Paul continues, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy, for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Friends, in other words, a wolf, a wolf is just fine to rip the fabric of the local church apart, right? So long as people follow him, he's good. He doesn't serve for the good of others. He uses others for his own good. And in doing so, he wreaks havoc among the people of God. Friends, those who twist the truth end up twisting relationships within the church. False teaching and the evil lives of false teachers are like a cancer that eats away at the church's spiritual life. And each of us, as members of Redeeming Grace, has a responsibility to guard the gospel and guard each other's lives from such bad and corrupt influence the teaching, and the lives of the false teachers. We need to be able to discern the true biblical gospel from its imposters, right? We must all know and embrace healthy doctrine because the health of our church depends on it. But notice, Paul highlights one quality about these false teachers that he understands to be an issue, I think, more broadly in the life of the church. At the end of verse 5, he says that these, these ones who teach this different doctrine imagine that godliness is a means of gain. And this one phrase sets up for Paul a discussion that fills much of the last chapter of the book, this, this Christian perspective toward money. Part of the false teacher's charade is that while they present themselves as sincere, they're really just in it for the money, right? They see their so-called godliness and their ministry as a gravy train. They really have no interest in true godliness, but only what they might gain financially from a form of godliness. Friends, throughout the history of Christ's church, wolves have dressed up in sheep's clothing for this specific purpose. From Simon the magician in Acts 8, to the medieval Roman Catholic church and the selling of indulgences, to the prosperity preachers of the present age. One of the most telling signs of false teachers is that they use the guise of religion to get rich. Beloved, don't be duped by televangelists and famous preachers who tout their own wealth and their opulent lifestyle as proof that God gives wealth to those who have enough faith. Wealth is not always a sign of God's blessing. And especially not in this case. Rather, it's part of the front of a satanic scheme that the enemy has designed and is now exporting globally to deceive people into to embracing a false gospel. Now, I think the majority of us here in this room understand that godliness is not a means of financial gain. Right? I doubt that many of us are in danger of embracing a full-on heresy that, that God promises earthly wealth and health in response to, to adequate faith. But I do fear that many Christians often embrace a prosperity gospel light 
a diet prosperity heresy, if you will. You say, John, what are you talking about? Well, I mainly see this in believers' response to trials and suffering. Instead of trusting in God's sovereignty and love and wisdom, I hear believers say things like, doesn't God realize how faithful I've been? How could he do this to me? How could God bless that person with X, Y, Z that I've wanted for years when clearly I'm more faithful than they are? Why would God take away my job? Doesn't he know how regularly and generously I give to the church? Oh, friends, it's so insidious, isn't it? Suddenly but surely, we make godliness the means to getting what we want from God. And when we don't get what we want, we accuse him. It's nothing but diet prosperity heresy. Only it's not good like diet Coke. It's really like diet poison, right? Friends, godliness is not about you. It's about honoring God in all of life, both in the good and the bad, in the easy and the hard, in prosperity and in suffering, knowing that God is working all things together for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Clearly, Paul wants the believers in Timothy's church to understand that godliness is not a means of financial gain. And he also knows that the, that the covetousness of false teachers isn't isolated to the wicked, right? It's a common temptation for Christians. And so verses 6 to 10 provide Paul's counter to the false teacher's greed. It's his counter to our temptation to greed and covetousness and discontentment. Here's the counter, verse 6. But... Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness is not a means to gain. Godliness is gain when coupled with contentment in Christ. Paul just flips this concept of gain right on its head, doesn't he? Some may, may build a facade of godliness for financial gain, but there is immense spiritual gain that awaits those who honor God with contentment. Now, before we go further, I, I think it's going to be important that we understand what Paul means and doesn't mean by this word contentment. The ancient Stoics in Greek philosophy, they prided themselves in their quest for contentment, which to them was this unflappable happiness that was independent upon external circumstances. They said, the Stoics said, just look within and within yourself, you can be content within your own resources and who you are. Now, friends, that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? It's not far away from some of the mantras of our own culture, is it? Follow your heart for true happiness. Discover and express your true self to be happy. Don't even let boundaries like biology and sex chromosomes restrain you from finding and expressing who you truly are. Friends, all humanity thirsts for contentment of the soul, for rest, for satisfaction, for happiness. Even we Christians do. And like the Stoics, we believers believe that contentment is not to be found in our outside circumstances. But unlike the Stoics, and unlike the philosophy of our age, we also believe that happiness and contentment and satisfaction and joy are not found within ourselves. Instead, our joy and happiness and rest and satisfaction are found in Christ alone. Paul wrote in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, 
abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Friends, our, our joy ought not to be hitched to the wagon of a little money or a lot of money. Our joy and peace and quietness of heart ought not to rise and fall like a roller coaster with the changes in our bank account. We have Christ, and that is enough. In verse 7, Paul hands us an antidote to the poison of discontentment about money. He says an eternal perspective will deaden the allure of wanting more in your heart. For, here's, here's kind of a grounds, here's a reason that we can be content. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. Why would we pine for the stuff of this life, pine away for money and the things that can buy when we did not enter this life with anything and we'll, our exit from this life will look exactly the same? We didn't own, any, own anything in the womb, will not own anything in the tomb. Paul here echoes the words of righteous Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. John Stott once wrote that our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. Our life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. How true that is. Friends, I guarantee you that you'll not have one thought of regret, of regret in heaven for not working harder to accumulate wealth on this earth. You'll not have one regret about that. When we reach glory and receive the fullness of our inheritance that is stored for us there, we'll realize how foolish our pursuits of earthly wealth and possessions actually were. Brothers and sisters, don't set your heart on the things that are bound to this earth. Armed with the perspective of eternity, we can be content in what we have and with the simple meeting of our needs. You know, a discontent heart a heart that's not resting in the Lord, you know what it does? It, it, it kind of backs its truck up and it dumps way more things into the need category than deserve to be there, right? Wants become needs to the discontent. But verse eight recalibrates our hearts, doesn't it? Verse eight, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Food and clothing are kind of Paul's stand-ins for the basic necessities of life. Friends, is this your mindset? My guess is that most of us have a very different standard than the biblical one. Our standard is more like, but if I, if I have the, the latest iPhone, with that I will be content, right? If I, if I own a house or I drive this type of car, if I wear these type of shoes or if I have this much in my retirement portfolio, with these I will be content, that's when I'll reach that level of satisfaction and joy. My friends, those things aren't evil. They're among God's good gifts to enjoy much of the time, but they ought not to dictate our joy or be the barometer of our contentment. I wonder how this recent surge in inflation is, is testing your contentment. There's no longer as much wiggle room in your budget, perhaps. Maybe inflation is starting to eat away at your savings. It's a little bit tough right now, isn't it? But friends, do you have food on your table and clothing on your body? Has your gracious Father met your basic needs? My friend, with these, we ought to be content in our God. 
the good news is that even as Paul encourages the simple standard of living, we know that our God, our gracious Father, has committed himself to meeting these most basic needs as long as he has us, us here on this earth. Even in relation to, to, to food and clothing, Jesus said in Matthew 6, look at how your gracious Father is committed to providing for the birds of the air their food. Look at the flowers of the field, how well they are clothed. Oh, will your Father in heaven not clothe you, O ye of little faith? Verses 9 and 10, Paul issues a warning about the danger of craving money. He doesn't mince words, does he? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, to many senseless and harmful desires that, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Again, friends, notice Paul does not take the rich to task. Being rich is not a sin. Craving riches is. You can be as poor as a pauper and yet still fall into this trap. The scripture warns us away from the allure of desiring wealth. When our hearts pine after money, when we find ourselves discontent with what we have, friends, we are in the danger zone. We ought to see this passage like a, like a hazard sign on the highway, warning us that a potential unsafe situation lies ahead. Why? Why? Because I think Paul knows the truths of what we read earlier in Ecclesiastes 5. When Beth read, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It's never enough, is it? We think it'll be enough when we get that raise, but it's never enough. Greed for money is like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. Friends, the realm of money is often one of the most heated battlegrounds for the allegiance of our hearts. Money received as a good gift from the hand of God is a wonderful blessing. But money as a false God will demand the total allegiance of your heart. It launches a lethal assault on your spiritual life. You may think, oh, I, I can kind of split allegiance between Jesus. I, I come to church on Sunday. I can kind of split allegiance between Jesus and the, the pursuit of riches. But Jesus says otherwise, didn't he? Either you will love the one and hate the other, or you will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Paul is saying, see the danger for what it is. Look at what Paul says the craving for wealth does. It, it causes people to fall into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people. That's, a, that's an aquatic word that's only used one other time in the Gospels for the word sink. It plunges people into ruin and destruction. Friends, sometimes the Lord just gives you things that happen in your life to be great sermon illustrations like the next day you're going to preach. So yesterday I was cleaning up for my daughter's birthday party. Um, they had, she had a pool party, and uh, she's eight now. Wish her a happy birthday. And I was cleaning up uh, all the floats outside. And there's one float. It's not one of those air-filled floats. It's more like a spongy, kind of more solid float, cylinder in shape, kind of long, kind of tube float. And I'm up there picking out, and I think, I, I think oh, this. you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to step on it. It's right on the edge of the pool. I'm going to step on it. And, and I'm going to try to squeeze some of that water out. Don't ask me why I did that. 
I can't answer why I did that. It, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And friends, here's what, here's what cylinder uh, floats do. They, they actually roll. And so I, I step on this, this float to, to try to squeeze the water out, and it just goes whoop. And friends, I go whoop, and guess what's under me? Nothing but water. And I go headlong into our pool, fully clothed. And the worst part was my phone was in my hand. <laughs> and I go flying in, and my phone plunges and sinks to the bottom. Now, not only is that a great illustration of what Paul's talking about, about plunging to ruin and destruction, in that moment, I had the battle of my heart. What if my phone is toast, right? Will I be content if I have to have a flip phone for a time until I can get a new phone or whatever? Uh, thankfully, the phone is no worse for wear. It's a miracle. I guess the iPhone, <laughs> Apple builds those phones durable these days. But friends, what an apt illustration. What I thought was so harmless and, 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 and not a trap at all. I just kind of waltzed right into it and went catapulting, catapulting into, the, into the pool and my phone plunged to the bottom. Friends, craving wealth, it corrodes your soul like an acid. It puts it in jeopardy. Paul explains further what he means in, in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all types of evils. Friends, loving money may seem harmless, Paul says it's sinister to your spiritual life. It's, it's, it's like the root that from which blooms the flower of all types of evil. The love of money breeds all types of sin offspring in your heart. I'm just going to tick off some of these accompanying sins. And I want you to think in your mind of faces and situations either in your life or in your family and friend's life where the love of money has been the source of all types of evil. Friend, the love of money is the root of pride and selfishness, and anxiety, and stinginess, and dishonesty, and embezzlement, and theft, and cheating on taxes, and betraying friends, and divorce, and selling drugs, and se sex trafficking, and internet pornography, and exploitation of the weak, and the list goes on and on and on. The, root, the love of money is the root of all types of evil. So, seriousness, so serious is this craving that verse 10 says that through it some have wandered away from the faith. It's that alluring, right? It's that deceitful. Some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, do not minimize this sin. The undertow of this lust is strong and it will, it will drag you down. In C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader in the uh, Narnia series, there's this one scene that, I, that, that st stuck out to me that I remember as I was writing this sermon. Uh, of course, Prince Caspian and his, his crew, along with Edmund and Lucy and Eustace from our world, are, are sailing across the sea looking for the seven lords of Narnia. And they come to this mysterious island in the middle of the sea. And they, they head down to a lake in the island, and in the lake they see what is a life-size golden statue in this crystal clear water at the bottom of the lake. And so they decide, well, that, that would be worth a lot of money. And so, they, so Edmund decides to dip his spear into the water to kind of lift the statue up. And when he does, he loses his grip on the spear because it turns so heavy. And when it floats to the bottom, he realizes, oh, the spear's turned to solid gold. And then he looks at 
His shoes, which had been on the edge of the water, and now the tips of his boots are solid gold. And they realize, oh, this is a magic lake. Everything the water touches turns to solid gold. And Prince Caspian thinks to himself, and he says, oh, man, the king who owns this lake would be the richest king in the entire world. I lay claim to this island, to this lake, and I'm calling it forevermore Goldwater Island. And Edmund, who had been a king in Narnia in, in centuries before in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and all that, he says, well, who do you think you are? It really should be the other way around. I should be the one laying claim to this island. And then Prince Caspian kind of puts his hand on the hilt of his sword and they almost come to blows. And when that all happens, according to the, uh, the story, across the gray hillside above them, without noise, and without looking at them and shining as if it were in bright sunlight through the sun had in fact gone in, passed with slow pace the hugest lion that human eyes had ever seen. But it was not the size that mattered. Nobody dared as, as what it was. They knew it was Aslan. Friends, Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you give money the worship of your soul, it's a one-way ticket to spiritual ruin, just like that man at the bottom of the lake. Instead, set your heart on the glory of one much bigger and far more beautiful and far more valuable than money. Give your worship to the only one who can satisfy the longings of your soul. You want to tamp down greed and covetousness in your heart? Look at Jesus. Look at the lion. Meditate on him. Contemplate the riches of his grace and mercy and the glory of his riches that await us for all of eternity and let the allure of wealth dissipate in your heart. Set your eyes on the king and the things of the world that glitter so much will begin to fade in importance. Friends, beware the danger of craving money. Number two, and these last two points will be much quicker, God willing. Number two, pursue the things that lead to life. Pursue the things that lead to life. In verse 11, Paul makes a stark contrast between Timothy and the, and the false teachers. He says, but as for you, O man of God, by calling Timothy the man of God, you know, Paul is evoking the Old Testament, right? Uh, the scripture calls Moses and Samuel and David and, and various prophets uh, man of God. Paul wants Timothy to be everything the false teachers were not, right? He, he's going to, in this passage, in these verses, stack up verbs and phrases that, that conjure up the image of intensity and tenacity and aggressiveness and avoiding evil and pursuing holiness. So just look at the verbs there. Flee, pursue, fight, Take hold, right? There's no question that Paul does not view the Christian life as a float down the lazy, the lazy river of, of life, right? He, he, he doesn't view the church as a cruise liner to glory. No, he says we're in a battle. We are entrenched in warfare against an enemy who is out to steal and destroy. We ought to be actively engaged with every faculty of our being and running and fighting and taking hold. Paul says in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Take aggressive action to evade the sins characteristic of the false teachers, in other words. Flee. But this fleeing is not without direction, right? It's not an evasiveness just running out to nowhere. Um, a couple days ago, I was, I was cruising around Twitter, and I saw this video that a couple guys posted, and it was this, this cyclist riding down a, a trail in the middle of the woods, and he had a GoPro on. 
And all of a sudden, the, the cyclist looked to the side and charging at him from, the, from his profile side was a, a huge brown bear, like galloping toward the cyclist. And of course, he starts booking it. And the next minute is him just making evasive action, fleeing that brown bear. Well, he comes to a part of the trail where a, a branch was, was blocking the trail. And so he just ditches his bike and runs into the woods. And he literally hides behind a tree about this, about this uh, wide. I'm not kidding you. And he looks around the, the corner and the GoPro shows the brown bear like kind of looking around for him. And, and that's where the video ends. I have no idea what happened to, to that cyclist, but it made a point to me that he was running away from the bear, but his running was with really without a direction or a purpose simply to kind of save his life. But that's not the picture that, that Paul gives us here, is it? Paul says you can't adequately flee sin unless you actively pursue holiness. You can't accurately or act adequately flee sin unless you actively pursue holiness because he continues to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In other words, the only way to truly run from sin is to run toward Christ who embodies these things. He embodies the fruits to which he calls us. Paul switches the metaphor from running to the military in verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't back down, Timothy. Don't wilt in the face of opposition and a pressure. Have courage. Fight the good fight. Pick up your sword. Unsheathe it and fight the good fight of the faith. He continues in verse 12. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Friends, all, all Paul is doing here is he's describing the, the fleeing and the pursuing and the fighting with an accent on the perseverance of faith to the end. <laughs> Take hold on eternal life, right? It's not that he or we qualify ourselves for eternal life. No, the passive voice is clear here. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called by Christ Jesus. It's his work alone that qualifies us to receive it. But now in response to that work, we take hold on it, right? We, with a strong grip, we don't let go until we make it home. Keep trusting, keep fleeing, keep pursuing, keep fighting. And notice, I love this. The Lord lined this up today on Baptism Day. Notice this is not a you and Jesus type of thing. Paul invokes a good confession that Timothy made in the presence of many witnesses to spur him on. You know, the most likely thing that, that Paul is, is referencing here is Timothy's baptism, right? It's through the waters of baptism that we believers publicly make the confession that King Jesus is our Lord, that we're not ashamed to identify ourselves with him. And according to verse 12, baptism isn't just a celebration. It, it functions like a solemn memorial in a believer's life. If we're ever tempted to stray away from Christ, we need to remember the good confession that we made in the presence of many witnesses. We're going to brother, uh, baptize our brother uh, Danny here in a few minutes. And Danny, we want your baptism to function like this in your life, like a holy memorial. And for all of our baptisms to do the same. Beloved, take hold on eternal life even as you remember the good confession that you made in the presence of many witnesses. In verses 13 to 15, Paul ups the ante. He gives further motivation. He doesn't just call to witness those who observe Timothy's baptism in the church. Now he invokes the presence of God and the coming of Christ. Is there any greater witnesses to call, right? In the Greek and the English, it's just one really long sentence, these verses, which makes it kind of challenging to preach. But here we go. 
Paul writes, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good, make, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. Ultimately, Timothy and all of us are accountable to God. We live out the Christian life before the face of our Creator who gives life to all things and before the face of our Redeemer whose good confession before Pontius Pilate undergirds our own confession. Remember the Roman governor? He questioned whether Jesus was truly the King of the Jews. Jesus knew that his life hung in the balance and yet he courageously confessed who he was. Beloved, if you're ever tempted to renounce Christ, don't just remember your baptism, remember the good confession of your King for you. But notice the second thing that compels our faithfulness, not just the presence of God in Christ, but the return of Christ. Verse 15, Paul says that Timothy is to keep this commandment unstained until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God, he will display at the proper time. This Jesus, friends, who made the good confession, who died for our sins and was raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father from which he will come, he will come to judge the living and the dead. Friends, the next item on the calendar of God's salvation is the return of King Jesus. No man knows when that time is but God. But the text says he will reveal it at the proper time. All history is heading toward that great day. All of life finds its meaning and purpose in that day. The return of Jesus ought to compel our faithfulness even as it grounds our hope. And now you can just kind of feel the momentum of Paul growing as he writes, right? The idea of this imminent return of Jesus, the timing of which God superintends, it just catapults him into a hymn of doxology. He has thought of God's work in creation. God gives life to all things. He's thought of God's work in redemption, the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He's thought of God's work in the consummation and the appearing of Christ. And now all Paul can do is praise him. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Friends, take courage. You may think you don't have the necessary resources to flee sin and pursue holiness and fight the good fight of faith and take hold on eternal life. And in and of yourself, you don't have the adequate and necessary resources But what Paul is saying is that our faithfulness is grounded in the bedrock of our God, who he is, the one who reigns over history and who in history accomplished your salvation. No matter how big the challenges, no matter how great your opponents, none of them hold a candle to the greatness and glory of our God. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Number three, invest your wealth for an eternal dividend. In verses 17 to 19, Paul addresses those whom he calls the rich in this present age. I love that, this present age, because all of us are rich in the age to come. In the age to come, there will be no rich and poor, no wealthy and destitute. All God's people will spend an eternity discovering the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. But until that day comes, economic diversity is a thing, right? Some in this present age have more money and possessions than others, even within the church. Some will be well off. Others live paycheck to paycheck. Paul, recognizing this fact, 
wants the rich to feel a special burden to view their wealth and to use their wealth in a God-honoring way. Now, friends, even the word rich and the word wealth are relative, aren't they? You travel around the world today. Come with me to the developing nations of the world. And what may seem to you, your situation may seem just very middle class, very normal, even lower middle class. You travel around the world, you realize, oh, I am very wealthy. God has given me so much. Paul writes in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Verse 17 especially highlights the richest perspective on their wealth, right? They're to guard themselves from haughtiness. I do think there's a special temptation for the rich to be puffed up with pride because they, they think, oh, I've accumulated this wealth for myself. And those who haven't are really, they're, they're a lesser type of person, right? Well, Paul's reminding us that everything the rich have has been given to them by God. And their fundamental identity is the same as their less wealthy brothers and sisters who have lesser means. They have an equal standing in the gospel as the rich. Their total wealth may be far less than the rich, but their value is equal. Their value is fixed and their ransom paid at Calvary. C.S. Lewis put it this way, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God alone. Friends, is that your mindset? Needless to say, we want to be a church where supernatural relationships fueled by the gospel flourish. You know, in the world, you might not find the corporate executive spending time with the minimum wage worker. But in the church, the gospel breaks down even those socioeconomic barriers. And rich and poor, they sit at the same table and they partake of the same bread and the same cup. We are united together as family, as co-heirs of the grace of life. Not only does Paul warn against haughtiness, but against misplaced hopes. The wealthier a person becomes, the more tempting it is for one's hope and security to rest on their riches rather than on God. Instead of a confident reliance upon God for their security and protection and provision, they depend on their bank account and their investment portfolio. Paul frames it as the uncertainty of riches, right? <laughs> at best, riches are a temporary security, and at worst, they're a false security altogether. How many people have gone to bed rich and woke up the next morning poor, right? The stock market crashes. Their company craters. They lose their job. Inflation shoots through the roof. Proverbs 23, 20, uh, 3 and 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. That's how it is with wealth often, isn't it? We think we have it, poof, it's gone. Friends, how much better it is to hope in God. The one who provides us with everything to enjoy. Even as you enjoy the things that money buys, remember that God alone is your hope. And be filled with gratitude that he has been such a gracious and kind father to you. That any pleasures of this life that we enjoy should lead us into a deeper enjoyment of him, our, our good and gracious giver of those gifts. 
But notice, Paul doesn't just stop in charging the rich to have a right perspective about their wealth. He also wants them to develop God-honoring patterns. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, those who have means should not focus on being rich in possessions, but being rich in good works, and specifically in the way that they use their money. The rich ought not to be known for their opulent lifestyle, but by their generosity and their readiness to share with others. They ought not to be tight-fisted, but open-handed, delightfully so, using their resources for good. They ought to view their riches as a capital fund for the kingdom, right? That's what, if you're wealthy, if, you, if God has given you wealth and riches, you ought to view your, your wealth as a capital fund for kingdom advance. Use your wealth to propel gospel work through the local church around the world. Wealthy people ought to be the most hospitable people, the most generous people, because in doing so, they, they emulate the heart of our God who lavishly provides us from the abundance of His riches. In doing so, they emulate the heart of Christ who, although He was rich, for our sake became poor that we through His poverty might become rich. But notice the main motivation Paul gives in verse 18. When we use our wealth for gospel good to help others, we invest for an eternal dividend. Friends, as, as you give away your earthly treasure, you amass a heavenly treasure. You store up for yourself a good foundation for the future and so take hold of that which is truly life. Do you see what this verse is saying? The way that the rich use their wealth is one of the primary ways they prove the legitimacy of their faith. It's one of the main ways they demonstrate that they indeed are Christ's. And so that on the last day, they receive the reward of, the, of their internal investment. Oh, friends, let me encourage all of us to have an eternal perspective on wealth. Every time you give to the local church, every time you use your funds to bless others, every time you invest in good gospel work, you are making an eternal investment. It is kept in heaven for you with no possibility of diminishing return. It will yield a dividend on the last day that will exceed all the best analysis or projections. It will yield the joy of an eternal reward. Paul closes the letter in verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. And may grace be with us as we likewise seek to protect and proclaim this treasure of the gospel through our church. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these straightforward and wise and life-giving words here in this book of 1 Timothy. Oh, Father, we ask that you would indeed make us content in Christ, sufficient in Him. Guard us from craving anything more than we crave and love you. Oh, Lord, satisfy our souls with you. Help us to set our hopes on you, to not be haughty and proud about what you have given us, 
but to be grateful to you, our good giver, and to be generous with our resources, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.